You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. So our reading this morning is from Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. And I'll be reading first in Korean and second in English. And we do this in reality occasionally to, uh, so that we're reminded of that our faith is global and that um, the gospel of Christ is being proclaimed to the ends of the earth as we speak. And there are brothers and sisters who are overseas um, serving God faithfully, and God is doing wonderful things through them. Also, it's a glimpse of what we're going to see in eternity, where all tribes and all people and tongues will be glorifying God in one voice. Okay, here we go. Verses 12. 그러므로 형제들아 우리가 빚진 자로 돼 육신에게 져서 육신대로 살 것이 아니라 너희가 육신대로 살면 반드시 죽을 것이로 돼 영으로서 몸을 행신을 죽이면 살리니 무릇 하나님의 영으로 인도함을 받는 그들은 곧 하나님의 아들이라 너희는 다시 무서워하는 종의 영을 받지 아니하였고 영자의 영을 받았으므로 아바 아버지라 부르짖느니라 성령이 친히 우리 영으로 더불어 우리가 하나님의 자녀인 것을 증거하시나니 자녀이면 또한 후사 곧 하나님의 후사요 그리스도와 함께 사는 후사니 우리가 그와 함께 영광을 받기 위하여 고난도 함께 받아야 할 것이니라. Uh, in English. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you ever feel like you just don't belong? Like, like everyone eventually is going to figure out that you're just a fraud. See, C.S. Lewis is going to say that we have this longing uh, to be on the inside of a door that we've only ever seen from the outside. But, but maybe some of us this morning, what, what's more true is that we're actually on the inside of the door, but we still feel like we're seeing it from the outside. We still feel like we don't fit in. See, this feeling has been called the imposter syndrome, and it's a feeling that an approximated 70% of people will feel at some point in their lives. And to be perfectly honest, I'm surprised that that number is so low. And while there are many contributing factors to why we feel this feeling, um, psychologist Audrey Irving says that it may boil down to just this. In order to be loved or be lovable, I need to achieve. In order to feel loved or feel lovable, I need to achieve. We feel like imposters because we feel like we haven't done enough to earn where we are in this life. And as you can imagine, this rubs directly against the gospel of God's grace. 
See, what we've been doing this year is we've been working our way through the book of Romans, if you've been with us. And each week we've been trying to show you that the basic message of Romans is how God forms a new humanity full of the light and life of his kingdom in and to a brutal and broken world. And this morning, our passage is going to help us understand not only that we belong in his kingdom, but also why we belong and what that means for our lives and our hearts. But before we get going, I I just want to make sure that I'm very clear. And so I'm going to give you my main point right now. I believe the main point of this text, so therefore the main point of my sermon, is that in Christ, God has adopted us as sons to live like heirs. In Christ, we have been adopted as sons to live like heirs. And we're going to look at that point this morning in three points. We're going to look at adoption to our minds, adoption in our actions, and adoption from our hearts. To our minds, in our actions, and from our hearts. But first, let's start with point number one, adoption to our minds. First, before we we really unpack all this, we need to understand what Paul is actually saying here. And so to start, we're going to jump just right to the middle of our text. Um, Because we're going to look at the heart of the passage. So look with me at verses 14 through 16. Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. For the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, when answering the question, what is a Christian... Theologian J.I. Packer responded like this. He said, the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who, calls, who knows God as Father. And he goes on to say, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And so through this text, Paul is saying that if you are a Christian, then the truest thing about you is that you are an adopted child of God. But more than that, if I can say it, he's saying that you're a son. In the Greek, the phrase we see in verse 15, it says adopted as sons. That's really just one word. And it shows up five times in the New Testament. We see it here in in verse 15. We're going to see it again next week in verse 23. It shows up in Romans 9, verse 4. And then we're going to see it in Galatians 4 and Ephesians 1. All of them are in Paul's writing. And it literally means, the phrase literally means to be set as a son or to be placed as a son or to be made a son. And so it may be obvious to all of us in the room, but adoption is passive on behalf of the one adopted. Even in the Roman world that Paul's writing to, adopted children did not initiate their adoption. F.F. Bruce is going to say it like this. He says, in the Roman world of the first century A.D., an adopted son was deliberately chosen by his adopted father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. Adoption was an intentional action by the father, and it always has been. See, but what Paul is is doing here is really radical, uh, because he's not just saying that we're children. He's saying that we're sons. And, And I know that in the 21st century, we get a little bit cautious about gendered language, but let's dive into it. He's saying that all of us, men and women, are sons of God when by faith we trust in the Son of God. See, today it's typical that children are adopted really young, or or maybe at least while they're still kids. But in the context to which Paul is writing, adoption was done amongst adults usually, or at least older children. 
In Roman society, adoption typically happened when a wealthy adult had no heir. They had no one to pass their inheritance onto, so he would adopt a son to inherit his wealth. But this is the radical thing, because women weren't heirs. And Tim Keller's going to say it like this. He says, it is true that in Rome, sonship was a status of privilege and power given only to males. Yet Paul now has the temerity to apply this to us, to all believers. This shows that God does not distinguish in giving honor. All Christians, male and female, are now heirs. It was a subversive thing for Paul to take a masculine-only institution and show that in Christ, the institution of empowering through adoption is used on females as well as males without distinction. And so as, as radical as the notion is, the gendered language should not be offensive. Women, you should take no more offense to being called sons as men, you should take offense to being a part of the bride of Christ. God is impartial with his use of metaphors, and each one is meant to show us something about our relationship to God. And so by calling us sons, he's saying that uh, by faith, a Christian is seen by God in the Son of God. And, and that's how we engage this doctrine of sonship, this doctrine of adoption with our minds. We have to lay that framework first. But now let's look at uh, point number two where Paul says, what he, what he says about how adoption changes our actions. And so let's look at point number two, adoption in our actions. See, in our passage, we see at least two ways that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live changed lives. And it's, it's very important that I said the Holy Spirit empowers us to live changed lives. And the two ways that we see is that he empowers us to kill our sin and he empowers us to cry to our Father. And so let's look at those in order. Number one, he empowers us to kill our sin. Let's look at verses 12 and 13 at the beginning of our passage. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, theologian John Owen famously said it like this. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. See, and, and remember, we learned even last week in verses 7 and 8 that the mindset on the flesh, it's actually incapable of submitting to God's rule. It's incapable of submitting to God's law. Left to ourselves, we are actually wholly unable to please God. We're unable to kill our sin. But notice here how Paul launches into our text this morning. He uses a phrase that connects us to what, what came immediately before it in verse 11. He says, so then, right? He just said, if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then... He's saying it's the spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead that is in you. Now live your life accordingly. Live your life like that's actually true. See, in one of the first episodes of the Netflix show, The Crown, we see a young Queen Elizabeth, and she's just learned that her father, or excuse me, that her uncle has abdicated as king. He doesn't want to be the king anymore. And so now her father has become the king, King George. And Elizabeth, as the oldest child of her father, uh, she, her, her life is immediately altered. Her life is immediately changed. The things that she learns now are different. She has to do things differently because she is now next in line for the throne. 
She has to learn new things. And to be the heir means that certain things she used to do now have to stop. And certain things that she never did now have to begin. And that's the same for us. As Christians, when we are confronted with God's grace, we understand that our lives have to change. We all understand that. When we, when we are confronted with the gospel of God's grace, we get that our lives need to look different. But often in our attempts to respond, many of us, yeah, we've changed our behaviors. We've maybe changed our appearances. We've done all these different things to try to fit in, to try to look like we belong. It, it, we do all this just so that we don't feel like imposters, so that we don't feel like we're on the outside, so that we feel like we're in. But Paul's saying, this is what it's like to be a debtor to the flesh. Continually trying to fit in is what it's like to be a debtor to the flesh. Or he's going to put it in verse 15. He says, this is a spirit of slavery. This isn't the spirit of freedom. It's a spirit of constant fear. It's a spirit of always wondering if I'm good enough. Always wondering, did I do enough this week to stack up? And so you try. You try to earn what you've been freely given. But to be a debtor to the Spirit simply means to live your life according to what is actually true of you in Christ. It's like this. Imagine you receive a gift from a friend. And then you immediately try to pay that person back. You're just like, oh, let me, I got you. Let me, let me get you for that. What you've done is you haven't received a gift at all. You've made a payment for a commodity. You've purchased something. You can't actually pay back a real gift. You can't pay someone back for the love and the joy that goes into purchasing, to seeking out, to finding the right thing, and then giving it. You can't pay someone back for that. See, we give gifts on birthdays and holidays, and, and we do this, right? Like, you give me a gift for my birthday, and I'm just like, oh, well, I guess I got, I'll get you on your birthday. And then we, we do this thing back and forth and back and forth until eventually one of us dies. Or, or it's like, you bought my lunch, and then I'm just like, all right, bro, I got you next time. It's this debtor's ethic. We feel like we have, we have a need to pay someone back for something that they've freely offered to us. But a true gift, I need you to hear this, a true gift comes without requirements, there is absolutely nothing that motivates a true gift other than the love and joy of the giver. And what Paul is saying here is that your adoption into the family is the most sincere gift that you will ever receive. It was while we were dead in our trespasses and sins that God made us alive together with Christ. If you remember back in Romans 5, it's while we were God's enemies that he made us his friends. There was nothing in us that motivated God to love us except for the love that resided in him. See, we, have, we all have that gut instinct. It, it's not necessarily wrong. It's just misdirected. Paul does not want, or excuse me, God does not want us to pay him back somehow, as if we could. He just wants us to live our lives accordingly. It, it's like this. If I gave my wife a necklace, I'm going to get the most joy out of just simply seeing her wear it. I don't want her to pay me back for it. I just want to see it on her. And so the question must become, how do we do that? Right, over and over again in the, in the letter to the Ephesians, different letter, but in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul is telling us things that we shouldn't do. Yeah, he's telling us a lot of things we shouldn't do, but he's never going to do that with all, without also telling us things that we should do. Over and over again we see this. And there's this one uh, chapter, in, or uh, uh, there's this one paragraph in chapter 4 of Ephesians where this, this interaction is really at play. You see it in the back half of Ephesians a lot, but you see it a lot right here. And I'm going to paraphrase some as we work through it. But we see this. He says, in, starting in verse 25, he says, Put away falsehood and speak truth. Do not sin in your anger. Be angry and do not sin. 
Don't steal, work hard. He says, don't speak corruption, but speak words that build up. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, but live your life into his seal. He says, put away slander and be kind by forgiveness. And this happens over and over again in Ephesians. And the list goes on. And he says, don't be drunk with wine. He says, instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. But the point is this. The way we kill our sin is not by just simply repressing it and saying, like, I'm not going to do that naughty thing anymore. We kill our sin by replacing it with godliness, with actions that are fitting for an heir. God does not want you to pay him back for it. He just wants to see you wear it. He wants to see it on you. And so to live our lives like a true debtor to God, to honor that gut instinct response, that we realize something has to change, God just wants you to wear your adoption. By his spirit, kill your sin. Live like it is truly yours. And so that's the first way that we see the spirit empowers us to change our lives. Now look, let's look at the second way, though. He empowers us to cry to our Father. At the end of uh, verse 15, we read, We have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Much has been made about the word Abba. Um, and it's an intimate term. The, the, the word Abba, it, it would be akin to, to our, our wording of dad or papa or daddy. We see that uh, this is a, it's an intimate term that children would use for their fathers. But it's not so much the word Abba that we should be concerned with here. It's what comes right before it. We cry, Abba, Father. See, when Jesus was teaching us how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins his prayer with our Father. And a lot of scholars actually believe that he used the word Abba there. When he'd pray, he'd regularly use the word Abba. Um, but we see that he was, that's how he begins his prayer, but he was actually teaching us to pray before that. In, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, he says, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father. He's saying, I did not just give you a formula. I didn't give you a magic word that when you say it, you know that you're going to be heard by God. He said, I didn't give you a formula. I gave you a relationship. One that alters your actions. One that enables you not to just call God father, but to cry to God as father. See, to, to cry to God as Father is far different than to simply call him Father. Your kids can come up to me and call me Dad, but my kids are going to say it a distinctly different way. See, the word cry shows us just how intimate this relationship is. He knows our needs before we ask him. How much more intimate could it get? The word cry means to scream or yell or exclaim. See, when I go pick up my boys at the end of the day after work, um, they see me and they, they run to me and they yell, Dad! They run and they give me hugs and they give me kisses and they just want me to pick them up and hold them. And it's the same when they're hurt in the yard or, or, or they, need something, they need help with something getting off the top of the shelf or when they're angry at me. Whatever it is, they can cry to me. They cry, Dad! And they have the security of our relationship bound up in that cry. They know how much I love them, so when they yell out to me, they know that I'm listening. They know that I'm going to come when they call because I'm the same dad who cuddles them in the morning and disciplines them in the evening. I'm the same dad who hugs them when they're happy and holds them when they're sad. 
And so it's the intimacy of the relationship that informs their actions. It informs their cries. All of it bound up in that one word. See, later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, some of of you are going to come to me on the last day, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? He's going to say, they're going to come to me and say, didn't we do all the right stuff? Didn't we say all the right things? But listen to Jesus. He's going to say, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, Jesus is saying, I need us to hear this this morning. Jesus is saying, I can tell who knows God as Father, not by the words that they pray, but by the way that they pray their words. I can tell who knows God as Father, not by the words that they pray, but by the way that they pray their words. Is there desperation? Is there intimacy? Is there knowledge? Is all of this bound up in the way that we come to God? So you can do all the right things to try to fit in here. In Christianity, wherever you are, you can do all the right things, but it's not simply the things that you're doing that God is looking at. It's the heart behind the things that you're doing. And so it's the spirit that enables you to cry to God as his true child, in joy and in pain, in all of life's ups and downs. And so we've seen how adoption is understood in our minds. It's, 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 it's something that we are, we are placed as sons when we are adopted by God. And we've seen how it moves us to change our actions, to kill our sin, to, to cry to God as our Father. But now let's look at how it gets into our hearts. Why does this matter? How is this true? Point number three, adoption from our hearts. See, it's a, it's a fairly common thing to observe, but when children are adopted into an existing family, especially older children, it often takes them time to feel at home because there's been a disruption. Regardless of what age that they've been adopted at, their understanding of the family reality has been altered. Something has been disrupted. And adoption educator Wendy uh, Kitlitz says it like this. She says, when I teach about adoption, I tell families that every adopted child has experienced a disrupted attachment. So children, when they're adopted into a family, they need to learn the new family norms and potentially be reminded that they're really part of the family. She goes on to say that maybe when you've adopted an older child, you need to even treat them like you would an infant, right? Like holding them constantly, kissing them, looking them in the eyes, letting them know, hey, daddy loves you. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And just cuddling them. And friends, God knows this. He knows this about us. And he's given us his spirit to remind us of this. In verse 16, Paul writes, The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And the key word here is witness. This is is courtroom language. It means testify. It means to give an account. But look, the, the spirit is bearing witness with our spirit. So this is a joint testimony. It's not just the Spirit telling us something. We're bearing witness together. See, often we rely way too much on how we feel and what we think. We put way too much stock in just where our emotions are at right now. That's why we feel like imposters so often. That's why when we feel like imposters, though, we try to earn, we try to do, we try to do something that's going to cause us to feel like we fit in. 
We try to belong, or we try to earn this belonging that we've been given by sheer grace. And what Paul is saying is that when the enemy's voice is loud, when the enemy is accusing you, right, his name is the accuser for a reason. When he's screaming accusations against you, he's saying, God can't love you. He's saying, you don't fit in here. He said, you, you don't belong. They don't really love you. Paul's saying that the Spirit is here to declare with us and to us what our true identity is that we truly belong, but it's not because of us. He's saying that we are God's children and the Spirit is here to remind us that we're his children by faith, by faith in Christ. See, in Ephesians, Paul calls the Spirit's, uh, God's seal or guarantee. And so it's like this, if you were walking out of Target with a flat screen TV um, and someone stops you at the exit and they says, hey, did you purchase that thing? Um, You say, yeah, I purchased it. But it's not just your words that they hear. Because you reach into your pocket, somehow you're holding this TV and you're able to get into your pockets. You reach into your pocket and you hold up the receipt. And the receipt is there to bear witness with your words that what you're saying is actually true. It's there to remind you that, yeah, oh yeah, I've forgotten the 30 steps from here to the door. I actually did purchase this TV. And I have the proof of it right here. And that's what Paul is saying that the Spirit does for us. He's our receipt. He's here to give us joint testimony with our spirit that we are really God's children. But we don't just have a testimony, a witness here with us in the Spirit. Man, if that's all that we had, that would be glorious enough. But there's two witnesses here. Let's read verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. We'll get to that one next week. In order that we may also be glorified with him. See, back in Leviticus, we learned that when someone sinned, they they needed to bring a sacrifice for themselves in order to make them clean before God again. In Leviticus chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we read, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. See, they they needed a spotless male, a perfect son from the herd to come and be their witness before God. Something that would advocate for them, something that would be a perfect witness on their behalf. But if that wasn't crazy enough, what's more is on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, we read that the high priest, right, the one who would go before God and offer these sacrifices on account of all of the people, We see that even he would need to offer a sacrifice for his sins before he could go go in and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. There had to be a sacrifice for him first. See, but Jesus is the son of the herd, the only true and spotless male among us. And right now he's standing at the right hand of God the Father, and he is our second witness. His path from the declaration of who he is at his baptism to where he is now at the right hand of the Father had a cross right in the middle of it. See, the perfect son was beaten, he was bloodied, he was bruised and hung on a cross for our sin. Him, our perfect sacrifice, our perfect high priest. He he didn't have to first make a sacrifice for his sins so that he could then go and make a sacrifice for us. Instead, he is our spotless son of the herd. He is the perfect sacrifice for us. And now the author of Hebrews is able to put it like this. He says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to to save every single one that draws near to God through faith because he lives forever to to be our witness in heaven, to be our witness before the Father, so that when God looks at us, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, the world, the world is telling us, achieve to feel like you fit in. Look to your accomplishments to know that you belong. Do something so that you can feel like you earned it. But the gospel says, don't look to yourself. Look to the cross and the empty tomb. Paul's saying here and now, through Christ, you don't, you don't just belong. You're an heir to the kingdom. You are in the royal family. You're not just in the room. You're in the bloodline. But why? It's because Jesus was the one that truly belonged, but he was cast out so that we could be brought in. Jesus, the true son, cried out to his father, but was turned away so that when we cry out to our father, we can know that we're going to be heard. And now we can know that we all truly belong because Jesus, the true son, was thrown out of that door that we long to be on the inside so that we can come in. Friends, by faith, lay hold of that today. Through Christ, you are an heir to the kingdom. You may feel like you're living the life of an imposter. You may be wondering if you don't belong, but the truth of the matter is that in Christ, you are on the inside of the only door that really matters. Do we believe that today? Let's lay hold of that this morning by faith. Let's pray with me. Our Father, we adore.